WBAI. I am Jeff Simmons, your host for today's special coverage, Pride, Progress, and Politics, 50 Years After Stonewall, Since Stonewall. Uh, you've been listening to some amazing guests today talk about uh, the progress that has been achieved, the accomplishments, as well as some of the setbacks uh, since the Stonewall Uprising 50 years ago. I do want to remind our listeners that we are in our final day of fundraising. Uh, if you can pledge a $50 gift today, you can receive a special gift, a CD from Pacifica Radio Archives, Remembering Stonewall, a radio documentary on the birth of a movement narrated by Michael Shirker and produced by David Isay. Uh, it's $50. That's it. It's going to help us uh, build out our new studio. Call 516-620-3602. You can also pledge online at give to, that is the number two, WBAI.org, or go on your smartphone and text WBAI to 41444. So as I've mentioned, in the last five decades, 50 years since the uprising. It's been 50 years of advocacy, of accomplishments, and equality. But equality has not always been achieved equally. In fact, over time, there have been confrontations over uh, gay rights groups advocating for men versus women or for a lack of support for persons of trans experience. So joining me today is actually a good friend of mine who I uh, have had the privilege to know, get to know over 
a number of years. Her name is Melissa Sklar. She's a government relations strategist at SAGE, a former board co-chair of Empire State Pride Agenda and the National Stonewall Democrats, and a transgender activist. She's a Queens resident, and how I came to know her well was she was part of a group of individuals that had met with me and the New York City controller, Bill Thompson, when they were advocating to ensure that the controller advance shareholder resolutions to ensure that the companies that the city pension funds invested in strengthen their non-discrimination measures to include gender identity and expression. And because of her persistence and the controller's belief that it was the right thing to do, dozens of companies, I believe by the time I left it was about 100, uh, that had been targeted agreed to do this. She is a force to be reckoned with. Melissa, welcome to WBAI. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for reaching out. Oh, my God, that's a great story. Yes, that was almost 25 years ago. Yeah, you're dating me and you on this one. Sorry. <laughs> so talk to me a little about your transition and your coming out. So uh, I'm older uh, than probably a lot of the the listeners here. And so I transitioned about 30 years ago. And um there were not many role models, uh, and it was uh, pretty complicated. I knew trans women going back in New York to the 1970s, uh, and they were all uh, very beautiful, very feminine. And um, and I was unable to really calculate how my feelings matched theirs, but my appearance was so different, so... It was a very difficult struggle at first. I went to the Gender Identity Project at the LGBT Center in about 1990 and met trans women who were like me for the first time. So, and how did you shift to become an advocate and get involved in, you know, in advocacy and politics? Um, within a couple of years at Gender Identity Project, uh, I became a peer counselor and the Gender Identity Project, the center is on West 13th Street. In those days, there was a a, a stroll for trans sex workers in the uh, meatpacking district, now the Gansevoort Special District. And they had a town hall presentation where an anti-prostitution town hall veered into anti-transgender language. And they said to me that I should go because I had a background in advocacy. Uh, because I studied political science in college. And so I went and I yelled and screamed and called them names uh, in front of all those people. And so they took revenge on me and they put me on the community board. <laughs> so, And that, that was about 1996, maybe 97. And, you know, and often when we talk about the gay liberation movement, we think of leaders like Harvey Milk and uh, Barney Frank, who's going to be joining us next after you. Um, but who are the trans leaders who should be recognized and celebrated this month and, uh, month and why? Uh, this week, Mayor de Blasio here in New York announced that they'll be building statues to Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson um, as icons in the, the early gay rights movement. Uh, they were there during Stonewall. Uh, they were involved in the first night. Uh, they had been leaders in providing housing for LGBT homeless youth uh, because they were so different from the mainstream uh, young queer community they struggled to find a place 
and over time their involvement was diminished. Um, from my personal uh, story, I can think of people like Ricky Ann Wilchins, um, who, when all of us were so busy on transitioning and fitting in and looking like non-trans women, uh, Ricky Ann created the idea of a uh, of a trans political community, and this would have also been in the early 1990s. And the idea to use trans identity for a political purpose uh, was completely unknown to us. I got to know Sylvia Rivera probably in the end of the uh, 1990s. Uh, she had she was working for the Metropolitan Community Church, and I got to know her there, and we became friendly. And she faced, from you know all the accounts that I have read, she faced a lot of discrimination. I'm curious what the obstacles are that many persons of trans experience still face. Um, here in the United States, in New York, in most places, I think it's less about trans identity and more about race. It's amazing that all these battles are fought and victories are won, and all the rewards uh, seem to benefit white people, where people of color seem to continue to struggle. Uh, and that includes trans identity. A lot of the, the trans women I know that are white seem to have jobs, have careers, have access to a college education, have good homes. And yet trans um, people of color, trans women of color still struggle to find a foothold. So I, I think it has more to do with race, certainly here in New York. I'm not as familiar with struggles in in places in in the South and in the Midwest. But here in New York, I think that race plays a very, very big, important negative factor. And it's not just discrimination. It's also violence against the trans community. Because just a few weeks ago, there was the 23-year-old black trans woman uh, who was killed in Dallas. And at least 26 transgender people have been killed in this country uh, last year, most of them black transgender women. Why is this happening? And is this being taken seriously enough? I think... uh I think as a white person, I had access to a, a good high school. I had the ability to go to college. I had the ability to get loans and, and possibly, um, you know, and pay for my uh, job during college to pay for it. Um, most uh, women of color, young people of color, don't get that. They, they don't get the access of education, uh, which is the really starting point for a uh, a life that that involves access, middle class uh, achievement, um, and so what happens when you're left marginalized without a education career? Then you do what you got to do, and um, you know I I was uh, my early jobs involved being a cocktail waitress in Greenwich Village, and I did what I had to do back in those days. Um, but within a matter of time, mostly thanks to my friends in the gay community. I was able to start getting work, and the fact that I had a college education helped me build that work into a career. You know, and one of the ways to influence change is to get into these roles in government. And you had run for assembly last year in Queens, uh, but as I, you know, uh, researched about the number of LGBTQIA uh, uh, folks who are in uh, these positions of power. Uh, you know, it's it's a small number. There are only 16 openly trans individuals who are elected to office in the country. And, you know, do you think, uh, you know, that it's stigma? Uh, What are the reasons why we're not seeing more trans individuals in elected office? 
Jeff, until recently, most trans trans people, trans women, have struggled just to build lives. It seems like we're reaching a point now where where trans people, because of all the great advancements that we're talking about today, um, now that that we have stable lives, we can start reaching out and looking to achieve more that will uh, help change our culture. Um, I think that as time goes on, we'll just like we're seeing a revolution of women involved in political office in 2018, we're going to see a continuation of that in 2020. You started with Danica Rome in, in 2016. Last year, there were, I think, two other trans women elected to state legislatures, one in Colorado and one in New Hampshire. Uh, so this is this is the beginning of a new culture, a new inclusive culture uh, with more opportunity available. Do you think in our lifetime we'll see a day when a person of trans experience will become president of the United States? Oh, Jeff, I, what I would like to see, <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I, who, I don't know. I have no idea. I, you know, I, I think what it's more important, I would like to see the uh, diminishment of violence for against trans women. I would like to see trans women of color get access to middle class uh, positions and, and stable lives, you know. I never thought I would achieve a stable life when I was new in my transition. My first five years were very, very difficult with my white skin and college education. My goal is less about that kind of political um, visibility and more about stability of life for as many trans women as possible. So uh, during the current presidential administration, we have seen a number of rollbacks that impact the trans community. Uh, so despite the strides that we have seen, uh, there have been a number of setbacks. For instance, they can no longer uh, join the military, and now the administration is seeking to reverse Obamacare reforms that provided health coverage. Why do you think we have an administration that is curbing the rights of trans individuals? Many people do not like Donald Trump. Uh, he lost by 3 million votes in 2016. Uh, so the people that did vote for him, he owes them. And if, if he wants to win again, he's going to have to repay those bills. Uh, the the right wing has lost the battle against gays and lesbians. They're, they're losing uh, more and more people are voting Democratic rather than Republican. So now they want to take the fight to the courts. We now see a massive infusion of Trump-minded um, Republicans uh, in the judicial system at the federal level. And eventually these cases are going to start to go to these judges. And then we'll get a chance to see how they really feel about who America is and what it represents. You're seeing that with this Alabama abortion bill, uh, which the real goal is to get it to the Supreme Court and see how Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are going to vote. Um, I think that Donald Trump doesn't really care about this. I don't think he cares much about anything. My concern is is the battle they lost against gays and lesbians. They will continue to fight against trans people um, and continue to take away as much as our rights as possible. My biggest fear next will be they'll move on to passports. That's a very good point. So as far as yourself, uh, you know, you did seek elective office. What's in the future for you? A memoir? I, I definitely have a book in me. The The sad news is I've got uh, mountains of papers sitting in my apartment. Um, I'm 
hopefully my future will be writing a book and not being on the TV show Hoarders. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, I've, I've been working in New York City now for over 40 years, and um, I, I live in an affordable house, and I'm dedicated now at Sage to try to provide as much uh, safe care for LGBT elders as I can. Um, the access and stability of my life I'm now working uh, at Sage to make sure as many elders in New York City have that same access. In fact, you know, can you just tell me uh, our listeners a little about Sage and the work that it does? I should ask about that. Um, just as as the in the post Stonewall era that civil rights became a priority for LGBT groups across the spectrum, Sage is uh, the oldest and largest LGBT elder organization in the country. This year, we are opening our first LGBT-friendly senior uh, elder affordable housing. It'll be in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Application week was last week. It's 145 units. Um, as housing becomes more expensive in New York, uh, for Sage to use it, its its network of of supporters and build LGBT affordable housing uh, is truly a gift and a miracle. We're opening our uh, Fort Greene house this year, and next year we'll be opening the second one in Corona Park in the Bronx. And uh, this is a great op- great opportunity to support the generation that gave us Stonewall and give them affordable housing in New York. So, Melissa Sklars, thank you so much for joining me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff, and have a great Pride. Happy Pride. So you have been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. My name is Jeff Simmons. I've been privileged to be your host today. A special uh, special uh, coverage throughout the day, marking 50 years since Stonewall. As I've noted, we are in the middle of our pledge drive. Actually, no, we're at the end of our pledge uh, drive for the spring. And for a $50 donation, you can receive a CD from Pacifica Radio Archives called Remembering Stonewall, a radio documentary on the birth of a movement. All you have to do is call 516-620-3602. This is a program that uses the views of participants and examines gay life both before and after the uprising in June of 1969 and the impact of Stonewall on gay politics and the history of the United States. And among the participants, one you'll want to hear is Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine from the NYPD, who led the raid on the Stonewall that night that then led to days of protests and uh, uh, catalyzed uh, the gay liberation movement. You'll also hear from Joan Nessel, founder of the Lesbian Herstory Archives, and Jim Ferrat, founder of the Gay Liberation Front, which was created in the wake of Stonewall. If you enjoy WBAI and are committed uh, to listening to us, even if you're a new listener and you want progressive radio, commercial-free radio, you can donate to support our commercial-free, non-corporate listener-supported radio. And you can also then share this CD with others to, to show them the history of Stonewall. So give us a call at 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. I thank you in advance for supporting WBAI. So we're going to be trying to get uh, Congressman Barney Frank on the phone uh, uh, in a short while. In the meantime, we're going to talk with uh, uh, Julian uh, Sanjivan. 
who was with Heritage of Pride. Because the Stonewall riots made one thing clear. The LGBT movement needed to be louder and more visible. And nothing was going to change if they, uh, they continued uh, a passive or non-threatening tactic. In fact, they needed to get organized. And out of that came, among other actions, the first Pride March, organized then by the Christopher Street Liberation Day uh, March. Uh, the march was 51 blocks long from west of 6th Avenue, Waverly Place in Greenwich Village, and it went up to Sheep's Meadow in Central Park. There weren't any floats. There was no music blaring through the streets, no scantily clad dancers. This was a political statement, and it also was a test about what would happen when LGBT citizens became more visible. Now, crowd estimates vary widely about this. I've heard, I've seen numbers between 1,000 and 20,000. But what was clear as marchers took to the streets was that there was a movement. They were chanting, say it loud, gay is proud. That there, and what was clear was that there had never been a demonstration like this before. So with this, I'm bringing on our next guest, Julian. Welcome to WBAI. Hi, thank you for having me on the radio station. So talk to me a little about your experience uh, and your journey here. Yeah, so... uh, (laughs) That's a great question. I always love that question. Um, I have been with uh, the Pride March for the last four years as a director, um, seven years um, as a volunteer in total for the Pride March. Um, It's been an amazing year uh, so far, and it's been the last seven years has been exciting for me personally. Um, So I'm originally from Malaysia. Um, I've been here in the U.S. for the last seven years, and that's also when I started being with the Pride, um, Pride Movement here in New York, and I've been volunteering for the March since. So, and, and Heritage of Pride was founded in the, uh, I think it was 1984, to take over planning of Pride events. Uh, talk to me a little yeah. about the, the history of Heritage of Pride. Sure. So, you know, um, initially it was um, Heritage of Pride was just set up to take over from the Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee, as you're probably aware. Um, at that time, uh, we were just focusing on um, some Pride, Pride Festival, um, the Pride Festival as well as Pride Rally. Um, and we also were working on uh, the march at the time. But as the years passed, we started focusing on multiple other events. Um, we started doing the Pride, uh, the Pride Island, which we now we call Pride Island. By the time it was the dance. Um, but today we have over 30 events that we are focusing on, especially given that it's World Pride. So we've come a long way over the last uh, many years, um, and we're pretty excited, especially given how important this year is. It's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, and it's also World Pride, and we are happy to host World Pride, and we're the first city in the United States to do that. So, yeah. And, and when we talk about World Pride, what are some of the activities and the events that go on here in New York City? Sure. So, um you know, the celebrations had obviously started with um, a couple of other events in May, early May, for instance, Staten Island had already started doing that. Uh, we are partnering with a lot of folks. Uh, we are obviously working very closely with all the other boroughs. Um, today, for instance, it's um, the Queen's Pride, and, you know, we're all partner organizations, um, and we have about 100 partners in total. So you'll be seeing every day, almost every other day, there'll be a lot of events that'll be happening. Of course, there are events that we are hosting specifically, and some of those events would be like the opening ceremony, where we're going to be having a lot of different folks um, coming on stage, like Whoopi Goldberg will be hosting that. 
Uh, we're going to have Todrick um, Hall. We're going to have a lot of other folks um, who will be at the opening ceremony at Barclays Center. That's going to be the first Wednesday leading up to the Pride March, which is going to be on June 30th. Uh, we have the Youth Pride. We have Rally. We also have the closing ceremony that's going to be happening on 30th at Times Square. Um, so we're pretty excited. There are lots of other things that's happening. And within the March itself, we are adding a lot of new elements that we're also excited about. What are some, what are some of those elements? Um, sure. So we, this year we have added a new category um, for Grand Marshals. We have the Stonewall category, and we are proud to say that um, the, the uh, GLF, Gay Liberation Front, um, is going to be um, our Grand Marshal for that specific category. The broadcast, we've been broadcasting the march for the last years. Um, it's usually three hours, but this year we are um, extending that to four hours, which we're pretty excited about. Um, we also have a lot of international participants this year, more than any other year. Uh, we have more than doubled our number of marches. We have about 150,000 marches in total. Uh, we have over 700 groups. Um, we have the entire enterprise section. So the enterprise section is basically all pride organizers from all over the world who will be joining us this year. And the list goes on about all of these added elements that we're going to be having this year. So it's definitely going to be exciting. So, and the march has always had a political aspect. And how is the how has the current national climate over the last few years impacted the march and the level of engagement? I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, we have worked very hard to make it as inclusive as possible, especially for the trans community. I think, given everything that's been going on with the current. Um, administration. We wanted to make sure that we had we held a special place for the trans community. We are having um, the march be led off by a car that's going to have both Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera's picture, large pictures that's going to be um, added together with a whole bunch of flowers and all of that. And you know, it's going to start off with a tone that we want to set for the rest of the march. We have a huge um, trans contingent, especially trans uh, people of color, who are going to be leading the march as well. Um, another significant part of the march is going to be um, the number of other grand marshals that we have who are also going to be from the trans community. We have the cast of Pose, for instance, um, who are going to be part of the grand marshals. We also have uh, Monica Helm, who is the creator of the trans, belt, uh, trans flag, the trans flag is actually, um, it's the 20th year this year for the trans flag since it was created. So it's actually a very significant moment um, since it's um, we're having the creator of the trans flag also be part of the march at the Grand Marshal. And, you know, I know the route has changed uh, over time. Where does it start and where does it end? Sure. So um, we, we've had the, you know, for, for many years, the route was always... It started uh, just below 42nd Street, and we walked down Fifth Avenue. We turned on 8th and Christopher Street, and we walked all the way down to Christopher, uh, Christopher Street, and we ended at Greenwich. But we realized, given the numbers that we're expecting this year, we're expecting anywhere between 4 to 5 million people, and that's going to be a large number of people. So we needed to obviously figure out uh, a number of things that can consider the different elements that come into play. Obviously, accommodating the crowd is one. We want to look at emergency um, and how do we kind of figure out different routes that can accommodate if that's a situation like that. And the third thing is obviously transportation. We needed more transportation options to get folks out of the route and to other locations throughout the city, given multiple other events that will be happening. 
So we, you know, over the last couple of years, we worked with multiple agencies, especially city agencies, um, to figure out what would be the right um, route to accommodate this. Last year, we tried it out. Um, you know, we got a lot of feedback. And so based on all of those feedback, we made a little bit more, you know, changes this year. So this year, the route is actually going to be starting off. Uh, the march is going to be stepping off from 26th um, and 5th Avenue. We're going to go down all the way 5th Avenue, turn on um, to 8th Street and Christopher Street, and then turn right on to 7th Avenue. And we'll be ending at 24th Street and 7th Avenue. I just remember years ago how a number of politicians, when the uh, the march was much uh, longer, did not like the or felt incredibly uncomfortable with having to march past St. Patrick's Cathedral. How how do you respond to critics who feel that the march has become commercialized? Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are uh, folks out there who do feel that the march has definitely become a lot more commercialized. But what I'd like to, you know, highlight is the fact that we still have a lot of nonprofits who are participating. I mean, like I pointed out earlier, we have 150,000 marches and we have over 700 groups um, participating. Believe it or not, over 80% of those groups are all nonprofit, um, nonprofit groups, and and a huge part of them don't pay anything at all to participate in the march. Um, so you, you only have less than 20% who are corporations and smaller businesses participating. And a lot of them are also local businesses. Yes, um, they do contribute a lot in sponsorship, but that also helps us sustain a lot of the events that we do that are for free for various organizations. In addition to that, we hand out a lot of money in grants. We have, or, um, this year alone, we are planning to um, hand out over $250,000 in grants to smaller nonprofits, um, community-based organizations, especially organizations um, that are run by immig- um, immigrants or people of color or women. So we definitely are able to give back through the work that we do, the way through support that we are getting from the corporate organizations. So I hope that kind of helps you know, um, give a little bit of an idea of what we are doing here to try and give back to the community as much as possible. And Julian, as I close, where can people uh, go to learn more? Sure. So um, our website has full details of all our events, um, nycpride.org. That's where you should go check out. We are also on Facebook. Check out NYC Pride. We also have, uh, we're also on Twitter and YouTube. All you have to do is just check out NYC Pride and you get a lot of information. I hope that was helpful and we are hoping to see you this year at um, and Pride March and all of our events. Julian Sanjeevan, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI. Thank you so much for having me at WBAI. You have a great one, Jeff. Thank you. So my next guest is a very familiar name, someone who has too many accomplishments to mention, Barney Frank, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives until 2013, who chaired the House Financial Services Committee, was a lead sponsor of the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act, which reformed the U.S. financial industry. He was the first openly gay member of Congress, announcing publicly in 1987, uh, and shortly after announcing that he would be retiring in 2013 after 16 years in Congress, he became the first member of Congress to marry someone of the same sex while in office in Massachusetts, which at the time uh, in 2012 was one of six states and the District of Columbia that permitted gay marriage. He was once described in in the book Ripples of Hope, Great American Civil Rights Speeches as, quote, one of the brightest and most energetic defenders of civil rights issues. Congressman Barney Frank, welcome to WBAI. 
Thank you. Thanks for the nice words. I, one slight correction. I, I served actually 16 terms. 16 terms. Years. You're right. You're right. 16 terms. I think I said 16 years. I meant 16 terms. You were 29, if I'm correct, when the Stonewall Uprising took place. I believe yes. you, you were in Boston at the time. What? I was chief assistant to the mayor of Boston, and I was at the time, I would have been the one dealing with any issue. I was closeted, but I was the liberal uh, leader in his administration. And I remember um, trying to find some gay activity, partly personally to meet other gay people and partly to do my job. And there was no activity of any kind organizationally uh, through Stonewall. And and what were your earliest memories of Stonewall and the Uprising? Well, to be honest, I didn't focus on it that much because I was working for the mayor of Boston. And the summer of 1969, which was Stonewall summer, was also the summer of one of the largest anti-Vietnam War demonstrations in America on Boston Common. And my job in part there was to make sure that the, uh, the rights of the protesters were protected while the city could still function and while I was aware of the gay issues, it did not have the, my, my energy, my emotional and other energy was so taken up by my job that I really did not focus on it very much. I mean, I was happy to see it, but I, I, I was just a, a very uh, distant spectator because I was so engaged in, in my job. And was there a point that you realized that there was something bigger going on in the advancement of gay liberation? Yeah, um, by by 1970. I mean, I grew up in 69 in that atmosphere. Uh, you know, I was 14 when Dwight Eisenhower, who was not a vicious guy, put out that executive order that, that we uh, homosexuals, as we were then referred to in the polite circles, um, were inherently flawed people, that we couldn't get a security clearance, not just because we might tell people our secrets, but because we were bad people. So, yeah, by by the mid-60s, I was accustomed to being fairly bleak on the subject about what was going to happen. And I remember thinking how much it constrained my career choices. And by 1970, uh, I didn't see it right away, but by 1970, following politics as closely as I did, I began to see the, uh, the pro-gay stuff here and the pro-gay stuff there, uh, a bill in Congress, a, a thing in New York City, and... Uh, so, so I did. I was aware of that by seventy. And you know, and as we look at that period from then until now, what would you say are are are, are the most significant accomplishments in uh, civil rights for the LGBTQIA communities post Stonewall? Well, the the I would say for the majority of us, because we choose to live in those states that are somewhat civilized, we've got pretty full legal equality. Uh, there were a whole bunch of things. You know, one of the things I worked on in Congress was to abolish the law that had been passed in 1900, but reaffirmed and toughened in 1965 uh, by a combination of the John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson administrations that said if you were a sexual pervert, meaning us, you couldn't even come to America. There was an immigration ban, and uh, there was, of course, the military ban, and there were other factors. There were very few protections. Uh, the first state to include us in any discrimination protection, which was cut in 83, and then uh, Massachusetts came later in 89. I filed a bill my first year as a legislator in 1972 to give us protection against discrimination, uh, but uh, it took a while, obviously, for that to pass. 
So what's happened is if you live in New York, California, Massachusetts, you have full legal rights. That's a major accomplishment. There were still pockets of prejudice, and there was the threat that the uh, right-wing dominated Supreme Court will start making exceptions for bigots to our rights. It hasn't happened yet, but it's our major fear. Um, and then, having done that, we have moved on to the point where uh, uh, transgender people are now getting uh, protection included under hate crimes law and in some states uh, under anti-discrimination. So I would say we, we have two Americans this now. There are, there are parts of the country where people are still very unprotected. But in, in uh, states where a majority of people live, and certainly where a majority of us choose to live, you, we've got full legal protections. And you just touched on this with the Supreme Court. What do you believe that, and I don't want to scare you, but what do you believe that a second Trump term could do to this country as far as the advancement of LGBT rights? Oh, it will riddle them. It will turn them into Swiss cheese. They're not going to do a head-on saying, well, first of all, a second Trump term will mean there will never be a federal bill passed that includes us in the uh, protections. Uh, That is, Trump would veto it. You wouldn't get two-thirds. You know, the House just passed a bill led by Dave Cicilline, an openly gay man who's becoming part of the House leadership. And that's a very good sign. Um, that uh, totally protects LGBT people, including transgenders explicitly, so that uh, there would be these protections against discrimination. But it won't pass until you have a Democratic president, House, and Senate. And I wish this wasn't a partisan issue, but I didn't make it one. The Republicans did by being so increasingly well, the rest of the country gets better, increasingly opposed to, uh, to any rights. But even worse than that, if Trump keeps getting his Supreme Court appointees, I'm not sure about Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, but if he gets one more, uh, which he will if he gets a second term, unless uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg lives forever. And I must say, I used to be mad at her for not quitting, and now I wish her eternal life. <laughs> but also, Steve Breyer's 80 years old. Uh, you know, there's a double gamble there. What they will do is they will expand the right of virtually anybody to say, I am morally opposed to these people, and so I will not honor their rights. And the first thing we got was, well, I don't have to bake a cake for them. But it's not a very long leap in legal reasoning to say, and by the way, I don't have to have one of them work for me. If this person is married to another person, and I find that a terrible situation and immoral I'm not going to have them employed by me. I'm not going to have my health insurance plan cover a gay spouse, which it would in some cases. And what I am, the worst case is Trump wins, gets more Supreme Court justices, and while our rights will exist, if you live in a state which is not protecting you, you will find that you don't have any rights at the federal level. And even in states that protect you, even in New York and Massachusetts, California, other states, with good state protections, the right-wing court by Trump will say nobody who is really morally opposed to us has to recognize our rights. So do you think that America is ready for an openly gay president? Not quite, but thanks to people to judge, we're got closer. I, I am delighted with agreement. By the way, in, in great irony, I think he's, he's performing better politically because he's gay. You know, he and their kind of internal sort of pair offs, uh, Senator Harris and Senator Booker, uh, Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, competing for, for similar kind of lanes. Um, Beto O'Rourke was the leader as a new, young, fresh face. Pete Buttigieg has now passed O'Rourke, and I, I think it's because he's gay, um, 
he gets a lot of attention because he's gay. He then, because he's such a talented candidate and person, so thoughtful that he he uses that attention to do better. So no, I, I you know, but this we're talking about the Democratic primary, uh, and unfortunately, one of the great partisan differences in America now is the Democrats have become increasingly very supportive of the full set of rights for LGBT people, and the Republicans have become increasingly overwhelmingly against them. So when you get to a November election, you know, the country's somewhat closely divided. It doesn't take, you know, if 7 or 8% of the people have decided that this is terrible, that's enough to, to tip an election. So I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think the great reception that Buttigieg has earned for himself helps get us there. So, Congressman Frank, I do not want to keep you long, so I've got a final question for you. It'll be a bit personal. You're coming out in 1987. How did that change your life? Oh, enormously for the better. Um, by the way, I do want to say, I, I was the first to come out voluntarily. My colleague Gary Studs had been outed before uh, because he'd been involved in a sexual situation. The problem with that was there were other members of Congress who'd been outed, but in every case it was because they were involved in some situation that really they shouldn't have been in. Gary was the first one who said, yeah, I'm gay. Uh, all the others had announced that the reason they were caught in that situation was that uh, they were drunk. And in fact, they were too drunk to remember. My own experience has been people who are too drunk to remember are too drunk to do anything that you have to remember. But the, um, <laughs> uh, it, it enormously changed me. I was trying to live this dual life. Uh, I got engaged uh, in, in, in dealing with hustlers. It was, it was awful. I, I had emotional and physical needs that I needed to satisfy, but I was denying myself the ability fully to do it. And I'll tell you, this is the best way to explain it. A lot of my liberal friends at the time, straight liberals, I mean, I didn't just come out one day, boom. I was doing graduates. A lot of people knew that. And most of my white, straight, liberal, well, not just white, my straight liberal colleagues were very flatteringly saying to me, please don't come out because you're very valuable with us. And if you come out, you'll be the one-issue candidate, and we'll lose you as an ally. Obviously, gay people wanted me to come out, and they understood. After I came out, almost all of them came to me and said, well, glad you did that, because you're better at your job. Legislating is very personal. Increasingly, I was angry and, and, and cramped intellectually and cramped emotionally, and carrying out was a, was a liberating factor for me that not only gave me a personal life, but because I had a better personal life, I became better at my very personal job. So it was an enormous change for me, the, the single most important positive change in my life. Congressman Barney Frank, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI. I really appreciate it, and happy Pride. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. So. Our final guest today is someone who I have known for some time. We talked earlier with uh, uh, former New York State Senator Tom Duane. Well, I've got one of his protégés on the phone now. We are extremely happy to have the former uh, Speaker of the New York City Council, Christine Quinn, on with us. Welcome to WBAI, Christine. Thank you, Jeff, and what an honor to get to go after Barney Frank. Isn't he great? (laughs) He is the best. So, uh, you know, you worked with Tom Duane, and I really just wanted to ask you about how Tom shaped your career. Well, Tom, in in every facet of his career, really um, demonstrated fearlessness. You know, when he came out um, as HIV positive in 1991, when he continued to push issues that made people extremely uncomfortable 
in the city council back in the early 90s when he pushed uh, marriage equality in Albany when he was a state senator. Um, so I think the bit greatest kind of role model characteristic he had was one of acting fearlessly. But being clear that he was totally afraid a lot of the time and wasn't fearless, but acting fearlessly nonetheless. And I want to talk a little about your experience. Uh, how did Stonewall, the Stonewall Uprising, Im- over time impact your life and your career? Well, um, you know, it, it, it puts into perspective, and it's always put into perspective, in work that I've done, how hard it was and how, as ever bad things have been in my experience, in LGBT political activism or work, it was nothing like then and nothing like even worse than that. And uh, it kind of fuels you or fuels me the recognition of how brave those people were, how much they were risking with no backdrop, right? If they uh, were seen in the the footage of Stonewall riots, they were going to probably lose their job and have no recourse. So it, it, it instilled in me uh, a sense of no excuses, no excuses. People repeatedly and heroically have put themselves fully on the line. So to have been able to grow up and grow up politically in a time that was more advanced, not where we wanted it to be, but more advanced than then, really solidified that that you have to keep pushing forward at whatever the risk is because people had done that so dramatically with so much more to lose and you know it's interesting because with a number of the guests like barney and others uh, barney frank and others we've talked about the climate in the country right now because despite all the strides we're just facing a number of of setbacks uh and yeah. you consider i mean even recently the rights of women um uh, amid all these states actions to ban abortion yeah. how do we stand up to this you know advocates have made a difference over so many generations how do we stand up to this opposition well we just do it we do it We don't question whether we're going to stand up. We don't question whether we're going to fight back. We don't question whether there's easier or softer ways to go. We just do it. And we do it based on the knowledge and the experience, as you said, of the difference that has been made, of how it was only activism that brought us Roe versus Wade. It was only activism that has kept that um, the law of the land. And, you know, it was the LGBT community itself that rose up at Stonewall and continued to rise up and and continued to address crises in our community, like the AIDS epidemic with ACT UP. So we need to recognize that although we have made progress and be fortified by that, that this is a uniquely disastrous time in our country, and we need show up and push back. And what's the message that as we mark the, you know, 50 years after Stonewall, what's the message we want to send to younger generations about what they should know and, and honor uh, about the uprising? Well, it's important for people to know history. It really is in, in, in any, in the context of any human rights or civil rights movement. Because it's easy to get complacent, and particularly if you're in 
you know, a state like New York where there is an LGBT civil rights law, it's easy to think I'm okay. So you need to understand history and understand how bad it was and how much people risked to move things forward. And you want younger generations to know nothing happened by accident. Nobody gave the LGBT community anything. Everything we got, we earned and we fight for, we fought for. And people who are, who are coming into activism now need to know that and need to be fueled by the really sustained and ongoing victories of our community that were all facilitated and brought to bear because of the community. And they need to know that to help be, that really needs to be their foundation as they move forward in the work that has to be done right now, given, you know, the, the ban on transgender in the military, the attacks on homeless transgender people by, by the Housing and Urban Development, uh, by the so-called heartbeat bills all across the country. People need to know how much people fought and put on the line so they know you have to work hard, but that you will be victorious. So, Christine, as we come to a close, I just want to ask you a simple question about Stonewall. What does Stonewall mean to you? The beginning. Being. Ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. What? No, no, I thought I, I, there was a pause. Go for it. I was. I was thinking. So <laughs> it means the beginning, but it all it means kind of most both the beginning and the end to me, because it was beginning, obviously, the modern LGBT human rights uh, movement, but it was an end because people were fed up. They were done with the cops raiding them. They were done with the police harassing with them. They were done having to hide in the shadows of, you know, dark, smoky clubs. And that often beginnings and ends happen together and can really sustain each other. Christine Quinn, former Speaker of the New York City Council, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI today. Thank you. Have a happy and safe Pride. Happy Pride. So when I started today's show, I quoted Martin Duberman from his book Stonewall. So in the final portion of our show, I just want to quote him again. He had written that if the Stonewall riots did not begin the gay revolution, it remains true that those riots became a symbolic event of international importance, a symbol of such potency as to serve ever since 1969 as a motivating force and rallying cry. Today, 50 years after Stonewall, we have a president that may be the first Republican one to acknowledge Pride Month, but whose administration continues to attack the civil rights of our and my community. We have a president who recently unveiled a plan to curtail non-discrimination protections for, for trans individuals under the Affordable Care Act, whose administration cemented a rule allowing medical workers to refuse to treat trans people based on religious objections, and whose administration is creating another one that would allow homeless shelters to turn away trans individuals. And as he does these, he's presented himself as an LGBT ally. Words matter. Actions matter. Fifty years post-Stonewall, our country is witnessing an undoing of so many achievements, and each setback that this administration achieves, it just paves the way for the next. We've already seen this with the reversal of allowing trans individuals into the military, and now our country is witnessing a surge of measures that could curb a woman's right to choose. 
We're also seeing violence against trans individuals and more broadly a rise in anti-Semitism and hate crimes across our country. I was extremely saddened and angered to wake up on Saturday to learn that pride flags outside of Harlem's Alibi Lounge, the city's only black-owned gay lounge, had been set on fire on Friday. And as our governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, said, I'm disgusted. There's no place for hate in New York. I echo his words. Fifty years after Stonewall, we just have to continue to unite, not divide. We must combat hate in all of its forms. We must commit to tolerance, acceptance, and equality for everyone. Now, I'm going to get off my pulpit because we're going to close in a few moments, but I want to thank WBAI for allowing me to share the stories that you've heard over the last few hours. And these were just a few of the many. There are so many more. There is a way you can hear a number of them. If you donate just on this final day of our spring pledge drive, if you donate $50 today, you can receive a CD from the Pacifica Radio Archives, Remembering Stonewall, a radio documentary on the birth of a movement, by calling 516-620-3602. And in fact, we have an anonymous donation from someone from Staten Island who donated $50 to receive this CD, and I thank you so much for this donation because this program uses the views of the participants. It examines the gay life before and after Stonewall and its impact on gay politics and the history uh, in the United States. If so, if you, if you enjoy WBAI and you're committed or even a new listener and you want to donate to show your support for commercial-free, non-corporate, listener-supported radio, and also be able to share the history of Stonewall through this CD with others, please give us a call to donate at 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. So as I get ready to depart, I do want you to stay with WBAI because our special coverage is not over. From 3 to 4.30, stay with BAI for Radio Gag, Gays Against Guns, a number of hosts that are going to focus on queer activist history. And then after that, from 4.30 to 6, the team at Out FM is going to continue our coverage with a number of interviews from the front lines. I want to thank today's amazing guests. I want to thank you, our listeners. I want to thank Sean Rhodes, who has been a wonderful companion here today, my wonderful partner in today's show, and really a hidden gem at WBAI, who's so patient with me. I thank Pacifica for providing that Stonewall CD that you can get for a donation. But I also want to say thank you to all of the leaders and the advocates and the elected officials and the unsung heroes who have fought for our rights and the freedoms that many of us enjoy in our lives, and for giving people like me the ability to live and love freely. I stand and I succeed on your shoulders. Thank you. Sing a song of sad young Glasses full of rye All the news is bad again Kiss your dreams goodbye All the sad 
sitting in the bar. Drinking up the night and missing all the stars, all the sand drifting through the town. Drinking up the night, trying not to drown. All the sad young men singing. Trying to forget that they are growing old. All the sad young men choking on. Trying to be brave, running from the truth. Autumn turns the leaves. Hello, new listener. Actually, maybe you've been listening to WBAI for a while, but you aren't a member. You heard us asking for support, but you thought we were talking to someone else. Well, we're talking to you. Whatever the reason that you didn't give before, now is the time to put aside the excuses and pitch in. What's a comfortable place to start your membership? How about $10 a month? Maybe more. WBAI counts on listener support. It's our only source of funding. Your gift goes a long way towards bringing you the in-depth news and accurate information that you count on. Call us with your contribution at 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org. Whatever you can do, please do it now. A sustaining member, $10 a month or more, become a WBAI buddy. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Maybe you're a new listener or you've been listening for years, but you're not a member. Now's the time to act. Mavis Staples. Anita Franco. Railroad Earth. The Whalers. The Mammals. Tom Chapin. Tom Paxton. And Margot Thunderbird. Are just a few of the many performers at the Clearwater Festival on June 15th and 16th. At Croton Point Park on the Hudson River. You can get a full weekend pass and support WBAI at the same time with a $95 donation 
That's the early bird price that's not available anywhere else but here on WBAI. Call 516-620-3602 or go to www.give2wbai.org and put Clearwater in the search box. See you at the festival. Hi, this is Bobby Humphrey. You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM.